May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. No harm, no foul, Karen. Sometimes it, uh, it helps to practice. I remember when 9-11 occurred, uh, it was that week, E.L. Foster, who was the mayor of Ocala then and was going to Grace Episcopal where I was the rector, called me up and said, hey, I'm going to have some of the city workers gather together. You want to come? I said, yeah, fine, I'll come. So there was a couple of hundred people in the room, and E.L. got up and said, I just want to welcome you all today. Father Don will now address us. Well, all righty then. Sometimes it's better not to know, you know. Well, I want to talk to you about this gospel reading this morning from Luke. Big idea, turn your lives around, here comes the kingdom of God. It's like ready or not, here it comes. Uh, the voice of God had been silent in Israel for over 400 years. The last prophet had been Malachi. And Malachi predicted John's coming said, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. I send my messenger to prepare my way. Lost people continue to need someone to announce the Messiah's coming and prepare the way of the Lord. Um, the prophets, whether it was Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, whoever it might be, had the same mission calling the people back to where God wanted them to be. Because they were off doing their own thing. They were out there worshiping other gods, living in ways that didn't comport with a godly life. And they were always calling people to come back, come back, come back. And then as the, as the gospel, as we have received it, was given to the apostles and then Paul he would tell Timothy, guard the deposit. Preach this word. Preach this message. Don't change it. You don't get to mess with this. This is what we've been given. So John is out there preparing the way. John came from God. He's, he's, not, he's not out there with his own opinion. He is saying what God wants him to say. You've often heard me say that people come to church on a Sunday asking, is there any word from the Lord today for me? Is there any word from God for me today in my life with what I'm going through, with what I'm dealing with for me? The desert that he was in, it's 20 miles east of Jerusalem, it's between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Anybody been there? Anybody been to that desert? A few people? I've been there. It is, it is desolate. There is absolutely nothing there. There's no towns, communities. It's just, there's nothing. There's nothing to draw you there. When people were going out to see him in droves from Jerusalem, it had to be the hand of God that was moving them. There's no other thing that could have done it. It says John is wearing camel hair, leather belt, eating locust and honey. 
He dressed like Elijah. He spoke like Elijah. He looked like Elijah. And people made the connection. So if I say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, what is that? What's that? Andy Griffith, right? Andy Griffith. Rappin wouldn't know that, but I mean, Andy Griffith, he's only seven. You deserve a break today, so get up and get away to. I have a dream. To where? Oh, I have a dream. Four score and seven years ago. See, they're just things that we know we respond to. So when they see John out there looking the way he looks, they know who it is. And in fact, the very end of the Old Testament, the very end of the Old Testament says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the very end of the Old Testament. Elijah's coming. Keep your eyes open. Look for him. And here he is. It was dark times for the people in those days. It was dark times politically, dark times religiously, and dark times spiritually. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias as tetrarch of Abilene. Every one of those men is a pagan. Every one of those men has power and authority over the people of Israel, the people of God. They could care less about what it means to be a Hebrew or an Israelite. They don't care. There's no unity in it. There's no, let's try to get along in it. There's do what I say. There's also trouble, dark times, religiously. It says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. It's interesting that it says, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been the high priest, so he's the high priest here. And then there's another high priest and another high priest and another high priest, and then there's Caiaphas. But it says Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is like the power behind the throne. Caiaphas is actually his son-in-law. The high priesthood in those days was the mafia. The mafia was a mob operation that oppressed the people. So when the people came... Passover, for example, they had to pay a 10% tax for the Levites that ran the temple. They had to pay a 10% tax for the upkeep of the temple. They had to pay a 3% tax for the poor. So when they showed up, it was like 23% of what they had. Now, you've got to pay the tax in coinage. You can't pay in Roman coins because Roman coins have the picture of Caesar on it. That's an idol. can't use that. But we happen to have temple coinage, which we will exchange for you at a very favorable rate to us. And you had to bring an animal without a blemish to sacrifice, a dove, a goat, a sheep, a lamb, whatever it might be. And no matter how hard you tried to bring an animal with no blemishes 
they found one. But it just so happens right over here we have a large variety of animals that you can buy from us to sacrifice. It was a racket. So when you see that Jesus is in the temple up to overturning the tables of the money changers, that's what he's doing and that's what he's reacting to. It was a dark time religiously. Spiritually, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Herodians, you had the, the Essenes, you had the Zealots, you had all these different groups of people, none of whom agreed with anybody. But they're always trying to recruit people or control your life. It was just a very, very difficult time. And again, God had been silent for 400 years, and now here comes John. People came, and the message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. People are convicted by John's preaching. And in Matthew, if you read Matthew's version of this, we see that there's soldiers, there's tax collectors, there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees. John calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees vipers, snakes. These are people that thought they were okay with God because they were descendants of Abraham. We're, we're children of Abraham. We're in. We don't need to do anything else. We're in the right club. And John says, no, you cannot live on the spiritual capital of the past. I cannot save my children. As much as I might like to, I cannot save my children. Daddy, you cannot save less. Just so you know. Right? Mm-hmm. Paul Ferguson is always telling me how his father built a church in West Virginia. People say, my grandfather built this church. I'm never leaving. And they think somehow that hereditary salvation is the thing. And that's what they thought in this day and age as well. And John is saying, that's not how this works. There wasn't anything gray about John. He told the truth. Sometimes I wonder if we're too careful not to offend. And by being careful not to offend, we offend the Lord. Somebody said the other day that there's the 11th commandment is thou shalt not offend. Offending somebody is a big deal. You get in trouble for offending people. You know? But the time for smooth politeness had gone and the time for blunt rebuke had come. I wonder if we're guilty of that today. We were out uh, yesterday. Kathy and I took a couple to lunch. And at the end, the server said, Happy Holidays. I said, you can say Merry Christmas. And he said, well, I said Merry Christmas, but people got offended, and they said he didn't celebrate Christmas, so I'm just, <sighs> Merry Christmas. They now say that saying Merry Christmas is a microaggression, a microaggression. Paul, John did not deal in microaggressions. He dealt in macroaggressions. He knew what people needed to hear, and he wasn't afraid to say it, 
Go back to repentance. The basic demand of Jesus, John, Paul, and the apostles is repentance. In fact, in Matthew 4.17, it says, from that, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What it means is to turn away from evil and turn toward God. Metanoia, a change of mind, a change of heart, a different way of thinking, a different way of understanding life. It's a change in attitude toward God. My conduct changed. My, my, my moral compass changes. Of what should I repent? Anything that draws us from the love of God. Anything that gets in the way of my relationship with God, of that I need to repent. In our baptismal covenant, we ask this question, will you persevere in resisting evil and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? It doesn't say if you fall into sin. It says when you fall into sin. I have a new nature. I no longer have a, that, that sin nature that I was born with. I have been justified by faith. But I can still walk outside of God's will in thought, word, and deed. And if, if you are a spirit-filled Jesus follower, you know it when you do it. And you want to get back as soon as you can. You don't want to waste any time because you get convicted by the Spirit. Ten Commandments. Lying. Now, somebody chastised me this morning after the service. Because I said Aaron Rodgers, when he said I'm embarrassed, I said, see, you've heard me say lying is the intent to deceive. When I, when I say something and I want you to think something other than the truth, that's lying. The example I used to use with the kids is if I'd have a plate of donuts and I'd say, don't take a donut, nobody take a donut. And then some kid would take two donuts. And I'd come back and say, anybody take a donut? He goes, nope. What? I didn't take a donut. I took two donuts. Well, you know what I meant. So when, when he says, I'm immunized, he wants people to think, I think, that I'm vaccinated. But he wasn't. Yeah, that's the guy that was unhappy with me. Just groaned. Cheating? Anybody, uh, anybody ever have anything funny on your taxes? Take a little advantage of something maybe you shouldn't have on your taxes before? Or stealing or unforgiveness, holding on to unforgiveness in your heart, hatred in your heart, bitterness in your heart, anger, fear, judgmentalism, looking at individuals and just writing them off completely because of who they are or what they've done. As Bob Newhart would say, stop it! God wants us to live as people of integrity. We need to be people of truth, honesty at all times and all things. We need to come clean and come home to God. People came to John. They were admitting their sins. They were wailing. They were in tears. They were convicted of things they'd been doing wrong. And the remedy for sin is not denying but admitting it. This is a hard thing for a lot of people to do. Admit when I'm wrong. 
We become free when we face it. We disown sin by owning up to it. John Bunyan was a wonderful minister of the 17th century. He said, the difference between true and false repentance lies in this. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart, but the other, as Eve, against the serpent or something else. The devil made me do it. It wasn't me. She did it. He did it. It did it. The circumstances made me do it. We need to own up to it. Proverbs says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London, but Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of the church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he could set foot in a church, years of wandering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson heard the clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him, and turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver. But then he saw that the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's Day. He waved the driver on, but the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline. Then he paused. Yes, he said at last, I am going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse, opened it to a ribbon bookmark, and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be... He took a look at the book, nodding, yes, I wrote these words long ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. <coughs> Imagine, I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading. There were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of the faith. Familiar to generations of Christians, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words. And I've lived these words, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. You can't offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. Now, we were going to sing that song after the sermon, but maybe we could do it now.
love that story because it's never too late. It is never too late to wake up and realize my condition and the distance that I am from God and make up that distance by repentance. It's never too late. We often associate John with the law. The law strips us of all our defenses. It presents us naked before God. No substitutes, no scapegoats, it's just me. No holy heritage or cover-up, just us standing before God. The purpose of the law is to show ourselves by ourselves in our need, our helplessness, and our sin. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. God used John to convict us, to humble us, certainly the people in his day as well. Without the law, we'd feel a little need for the gospel. Without knowing the sickness, we would not seek the physician. We're all sick in some way. No chance to be overconfident or self-secure and smug. I'm not so bad. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death, becoming other-centered, God-centered, and not self-centered calling a nation to repentance. That wasn't the main issue with John, but it was part of it. The main issue was the appearance of the one who will actually inaugurate God's kingdom on earth, and that would have been, that is, Jesus. We have a, a nation, I think, that has its own set of problems, but the problem I don't think is the economy or COVID or China, but it's spiritual indifference in America. Spiritual indifference in many ways. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, was giving a talk at a university in Vermont. One of the students said, how did the Soviet Union get the way it did? And he said, oh, that's easy. The people forgot God. The people forgot God. Now, many people know this verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, and it reads as follows. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them their sin and heal their land. Heard that. But Second Chronicles 7.13 sets that up. You don't hear this one very often. It reads like this. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send plague and pestilence among my people, then if my people, when things get really bad, if my people will call out, humble themselves, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. We need that now in our nation. There are some good things happening. We were talking in the Bible study this morning. Eleanor was very optimistic about young people. 
millennials and Gen Zs that are discovering God and on fire for the Lord, and that's a very good, promising thing. But that needs to spread and increase. We've been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace, too proud to pray to God, to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. April 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln's proclamation for a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer in the middle of the Civil War. So this Advent, as we await the coming of the King, let us not waste the opportunity to examine our lives, to not allow the craziness of the season to drown out the message of hope. God is trying to get our attention, and I pray that we're listening. So let me leave you with these thoughts. Repentance means I own responsibility for my part in what was unsatisfactory behavior. I accept responsibility for my part in what is and what will be new behavior. Repentance is owning responsibility for what was, accepting responsibility for what is, and acting responsibly now. It is responsible action. It is not a matter of punishing ourselves for past mistakes, hating ourselves for past failures, and depressing ourselves with worthlessness. Repentance is finishing the unfinished business of my past and choosing to live in new ways that will not repeat old, unsatisfactory situations. In the full Christian meaning of the word, repentance is a process. It is not a word to be feared, but to be embraced. It is what leads us back to God.